book of Isaiah. Are you into prophecy? Are you? I hope so, because prophecy makes up a third of the Bible. So if you're into the Word, you're into prophecy. A third of the Bible. It's the only book that dares to be proven by prophecy. None of the others do this. None of the others declare, I'm going to tell you some things before they happen, you're going to see them happen, and that's how you know this book is the signature of God, spoken by the Spirit of God. And we're going to see this throughout Isaiah, and it's absolutely marvelous, and I'm excited. We finally, after all this time, have reached the books of the prophets, and we're just going to bask in prophecy for the next several months or until Jesus comes, whichever happens first. But I say again, if you are into the Word of God, you are into prophecy. Ironside said the following in his commentary on Isaiah. Many professing Christians pay little or no attention to the prophetic word. But in neglecting that which forms so large a part of the Holy Scriptures, they wrong their own souls and dishonor Him who gave His word for our edification and comfort. The real value of prophecy is that it occupies us with a person, not merely with events. And of course, that person is our Lord Jesus Christ who came once to suffer and is coming again to reign. And he nails it. Prophecy is about a person, not an event. It's not about happenings. It's about Jesus. Revelation 19.10, which is the key verse in all Scripture regarding prophecy, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you're into Bible prophecy, if you're studying Bible prophecy, and you're not getting a clearer picture of Jesus, then something's not right. Something's amiss. All of Bible prophecy is there to point us to Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah has a great interest in kings, and especially in the throne and kingdom of David. His whole book culminates in the coming rule and reign of Messiah the King. And we talked about on Sunday, you can break this book down into three primary sections, all written by Isaiah, all one prophecy that he is bringing, one scroll, one book, but chapters 1 through 34, we can call part one. Uh, Not first Isaiah, because it's all one Isaiah, but the beginning part, and it's prophecy primarily for the kingdom of Judah in Isaiah's day. Now he's going to leap ahead several times, and we'll see that. Some wonderful prophecies, even about the birth of Christ and the coming of Christ that are inserted throughout. But primarily, the first 34 chapters, Isaiah is speaking to the people of Judah prophetically from the Lord. See, prophecy is not only foretelling, it's also forthtelling. It's not just future events, but it's also the word of the Lord spoken to a people to exhort and to encourage and to comfort. And so Isaiah will do that, and he speaks much to the people of Judah in his day, at his time, about things that are about to happen, things that are to come, and things they should be concerned about. First 34 chapters. Chapter 35 through 39 in the second part of the book is history. It's particular to King Hezekiah in Isaiah's day. Three different stories relating Hezekiah and Isaiah together before the Lord are told in chapters 35 through 39. 
Then picking up again, chapter 40 through 66, the end of the book, is all prophecy again, but now it's primarily about the future kingdom. The coming kingdom of Messiah. So, Isaiah is interested in kings. And the whole book is kind of formed. In fact, his ministry has uh, historical parameters to it. The first verse gives us these parameters, a sense of the season of Isaiah's ministry that we can actually date. Isaiah was prophesying primarily from about 750 to 680 B.C. 70 years of ministry. And it began in the reign of King Uzziah. Okay, Isaiah grew up during the monarchy of King Uzziah. He would have been born and, and raised during that time and begun his prophecy, I believe, sometime during the, king, uh, the reign of King Uzziah. 2 Chronicles 26, 2 Kings 15 tell about Uzziah's reign. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. It's a long time. He was a good king. In my Bible, during, beside the good kings, I have little happy faces. And by the wicked kings, I have little sad faces. And there's a lot more sad faces than happy faces. But Uzziah was one of the good ones. His biggest problem, his downfall, was his pride. But aside from his pride, he did good things. He did follow the ways of the Lord. He, he did try to bring good things into the kingdom of Judah. But Isaiah's ministry began sometime in the last few years of Uzziah's reign. Although some say he didn't really start his ministry until Uzziah died. Maybe you've heard that. And that's because Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 tells us, In the year of King Uzziah's death, which was 740 B.C., I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So people say, there it is. In the year of Uzziah's death, that was when Isaiah got his prophetic vision. That was when he got his calling. But there's a confusion there. The confusion is between vision and calling. You see, I shared this Sunday night. I don't believe I shared this first and second hour on Sunday. But calling often precedes vision. Vision is not necessarily the beginning of calling. Usually the Lord calls you to follow Him before He gives vision in your life. He calls you to faithfulness. He calls you to trust. He calls you to relationship before He begins to pour out vision. And I'm convinced that Isaiah had already been prophesying for some time before the death of King Uzziah. Why? Because verse 1 tells us the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah and the other three guys. But the wording is even more specific than that. The word vision is Hatzon. In the Hebrew, Hatzon, H-A-Z-O-N, is the equivalent of apocalypsis in the Greek, Revelation. Literally, Hatzon means to see, or means vision, but it's not talking about eyesight. It's talking about spiritual vision. Hatzon is, is used to describe spiritual vision, prophetic vision, or revelation. But note this as well. It says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw. The word saw there is Hatzah, which is the root word of Hatzon. Hatzon, Hatzah. Hatzon meaning vision, Hatzah meaning saw. He saw, but again, it's with vision, it's with revelatory eyes. It's seeing something that the Lord is revealing, not just seeing with your eyeballs. Okay, Hatzah. But Hatzah is also, and this is something we just wouldn't know unless we had a really good commentary or read Hebrew. Hatzah is written in the perfect verb tense. So it would be translated... Literally, the vision of Isaiah 
which he was seeing. He was seeing during the reign of Uzziah and the other guys. So he was already seeing. He was already receiving prophetic vision before he had the grand vision that we will get to in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I, I pause just to mention that. It probably doesn't really matter historically. Did he start in chapter 6 or did he start in chapter 1? Did he start during Uzziah's reign or just after that or when Uzziah died? It's not going to make any difference in your salvation or mine. But where it does make a difference is calling precedes vision much of the time. Calling precedes vision. How is that important? Well, God calls all of us to faith in Jesus Christ. But very rarely does He start you off with some grand vision of what you are to do with your life. God called me to ministry. I'm not going to take time to tell the whole story, but when I was 16 years old, that's when I knew that I was going to be in ministry. 16. It wasn't until I was 39 years old that I received vision. And when I say vision, I mean truly understanding and knowing what my ministry was supposed to be about. All those years before, I was doing ministry. I was involved in youth ministry and teaching ministry at various churches. I was serving the Lord. Not always perfectly. In fact, oftentimes I was serving out of my flesh. But I was serving. And it wasn't until that, that day that I remember vividly where I received vision and calling. It got clarified for me. I was 39. And I'll tell you what, several years after that, and Les and I have had this conversation, several years after that, I said, Lord, why didn't you give it to me sooner? I, think about what I could have done if I had gotten this vision when I was 20. If I had some understanding of what I was supposed to be about when I was 25 or 26 years old or, or when I was 16. How about starting me then? And I'm aware of it. I know of guys who, who got their calling and their vision very early on in life and spent their entire lives just, just serving in amazing ways. And I think, why, why not? And I'm only now beginning to understand. The calling and vision are two different things and God's timing is always perfect. So if you feel called by the Lord, you know you love Jesus, but you're wondering, you're sitting around going, I just, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Don't worry about it. What you're supposed to do is be faithful. Follow Him. Love Him. Serve Him. As I believe Isaiah was doing for some years before he received that great vision in chapter 6. Now, something happened, and i got to give you some background before we really get rolling in the book, but something happened in the latter part of Uzziah's life and reign that would have certainly impacted Isaiah. Uzziah the king, Isaiah now prophesying, a young prophet, 25, 30 years old, you know, still a little wet behind the ears, had some things to learn, and something happened with Uzziah. Turn in your Bibles back to 2 Chronicles 26. Keep your finger in Isaiah so you can get back there quickly. 2 Chronicles 26. About verse 16. Now, 2 Chronicles 26 does detail Uzziah's reign. But here's where it gets interesting. Verse 16 tells us when he, that is Uzziah, became strong. His heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. By the way, Uzziah's other name is Azariah. He's called Azariah in Second Kings. In Chronicles, he's called Uzziah. It's, it's the same guy. He just had he was known by two different names. And what's interesting to me is that the high priest's name was Azariah, and I wonder if that got into Isaiah's head a little bit. 
or, or Uzziah, sorry. Isaiah, Uzziah. There's so many ayahs here. I'll try and keep them clear. Uzziah, I wonder if Azariah got into his head. Why? Because Uzziah was the king, not a priest. But he became proud of himself and proud of his victory and proud of his power. And so he goes into the temple to burn incense on the altar. Only the priests were supposed to do that. The kings were not. We're told in 18 that the priests, these valiant men with Azariah, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. He's in the holy place, gang. Unclean. What do the priests do? Azariah, the chief priest, verse 20, and all the priests looked at him, which is probably what I would have done. And behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Wow. And this was the ultimate end of the reign of Uzziah. Isaiah the prophet is around at this time. He and all of Judah would have been aware of this event, would have seen it happen. How would that affect, I think back, how would that affect a young pastor? To see a great world leader, or at least a great country leader like this, who was a godly man, do such an awful thing and end up with such a punishment. How depressing on the national scene. And I'm sure it had a chilling effect on the faith of Uzziah's son, the next king in line during the prophecy of Isaiah, his son named Yotam. Look at chapter 27, verse 1 of Second Chronicles. Stay there for a moment. Yotam comes along. He reigns 16 years. He was a good king, but there was a problem. Watch this. Yotam was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Yerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Uzziah had done. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. I bet he didn't. <laughs> Going there? Have you seen Dad lately? You see what happened to him? And the people, it says, but the people continued acting corruptly. Yotam did not go back to temple. After what happened to his dad, he said enough. Hey, he was a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but church was out of the question. I'm not going back there. I love the Lord. I'll serve Him. I'll open my Bible every day. I'll read it. I'll worship at home or with you know Christian radio in my car, but I'm not going back to church because I saw what it did to Dad. And what happens during the reign of Yotam? Well, he didn't keep idolatry in check. And we're told the people began to get more and more idolatrous. And then when Yotam's son comes along and takes the throne, his name is Ahaz. Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28, 2 Kings 16, reigned and ruined Judah for 16 years. Ahaz would be one of the most wicked kings in the history of Judah. Ahaz would come along as a rabid, rabid pagan idol worshiper himself. He sacrificed his own sons in the Hinnom Valley. 
by burning them alive. Ahaz was incredibly wicked, the son of Yotam. Now listen, Yotam, he could handle not going to church. He didn't go to temple. He did what was right, you know, at least in terms of loving the Lord and, and did good things and, and followed the Lord, but he just didn't go back to temple. And look at what happened to his son. And I say that as a warning to parents. You may think you have faith to handle staying away from temple or not going to church, but what will be the effect on sons and daughters? What is the effect on people around you? See, we forget sometimes that church is not just about me. It's about my family. It's about my brothers and sisters. Do you realize when you're not here, and I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here, but do you realize when you're not here that there's an empty place, there's an emptiness for me and for your brothers and sisters? This is not about guilt, please, not guilt tripping. But it's about the value of each individual part of the body that God brings together. And when one of us is absent, it has an impact on those around us. Yotam's absence from the temple had an impact on the entire country and the idolatry as it raised up. It had a dramatic impact on his son Ahaz, who was so wicked. Ahaz had a son as well. He came along, 2 Chronicles 29-32, through 32, 2 Kings 18-20. through 20. You can go back and look at these guys, but his son was Hezekiah. And as does sometimes happen, there was a complete opposite effect. Because Hezekiah saw how evil and wicked and terrible his dad was. He would have been aware of brothers of his who were sacrificed to idols. So Hezekiah comes along and does 180 degrees from Ahaz. He'll reign 29 years. He will be the primary, uh, well, primary friend, I guess, to Isaiah. They had a relationship. They interacted. They would pray together. I love that. And he reigned 29 years and did good things and actually turned Judah back around. Hezekiah was only one of three kings in Judah who would maintain or, or rise to the gold standard, I call it, of David. One of three kings that said, not only, the, Lord, the Bible says, not only did these guys do right as, as their fathers had done, but they did right like David. Asa before him. And then Hezekiah, and later a young king by the name of Josiah. These three were the three best, with the exception of David. Isaiah probably had a lot to do with Hezekiah's faith, as we will see when we get to Isaiah 35-39. through 39. And 2 Chronicles 32, verse 20 tells us, King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, prayed about this. They prayed together and cried out to heaven. And gang, when rulers and prophets pray together, it's a powerful combination. The fact that Hezekiah and Isaiah would pray together, and we'll see this coming up, it turned Judah around, it saved the people of Judah, and it stayed the hand of God from judging the people in that day. I thought about that. Rulers and prophets, pastors and presidents. What happens when the rulers and the religious folk pray together? What happens when a whole country gets on the same page? What do you suppose it would take for God's judgment to be held back or stayed from America? I would say we need a praying president and we need praying people. And we need to pray together. Now, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1 and 2 gives a great dispensational panorama. It's really cool, these two opening chapters. And actually, chapter 2 through 5 is its own uh, ongoing story. We won't do all of that tonight. 
But chapters 1 and 2 open up for us an overview, not only of the whole book of Isaiah, which you'll see here, but also of God's plan for Israel's and the world's future, as we see in these coming chapters. Tonight we'll go from rebellion to reason to redemption to reign and finally to reckoning. Those are the five points of our outline that I'm going to follow tonight. Rebellion, reason, redemption, reign, and reckoning. And all of this within just two chapters. You may recall from Sunday, as we begin chapter 1, Kadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel, is fed up. He's had it with Israel. Number one, the rebellion of Israel. Verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks... Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. As the chapter opens up, God is the plaintiff appearing against His people. He's charging them with rebellion and He calls as witnesses, check this out, the heavens and the earth. He calls the universe to witness the rebellion of His people. That's how serious a charge this is. Verse 3, He says, An ox knows its master. And a donkey, its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And that, by the way, is the reason they wouldn't recognize Jesus in the manger 700 years later. Because they're like, dumb as an ox. As stubborn as a donkey. But even an ox and a donkey know where their food comes from. Even they know where the manger is. Do you? Do you know where your master's manger is? The place where we get fed? You obviously do. Again, you're here. Preaching to the choir. Let me tell you something with certainty. I had a, a, a conversation with a friend this last week. And he actually said to me that the, uh, the teaching on Sunday, he said that was the first time in a long time where where it, it really affected me. I said, thanks a lot. He said, no, 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 not, not, not you. He just said, I, I just, I haven't really, it's just been a while. And I thought about that and, and I, I, I shot him an email and I said, you know, I think that part of the reason why it's been so long since God's Word has had an impact on you is because it's been so long since you've been consistently in God's Word. We get confused I mean, if the Word of God is not feeding you, if if sermons or passages or teachings, they're not getting in, they're not as fulfilling perhaps as maybe they once were, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's not that you need less of the Word, it's that you need more. Because more of God's Word makes you hungry for more of God's Word. When we back off from being in the Word of God, that's when we start to lose our appetite. And the Word would call you back. The Lord would call you back to His Word. Isaiah tells us about this in Isaiah 55, verse 8. As the rain and snow, verse 10 actually, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my Word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. I believe that. I absolutely believe that the key to being well fed as a follower of Jesus Christ to knowing where my master's manger is, is being in the Word. And God's Word doesn't come back empty. All we have to do is send it out, gang. That's all we have to do. 
We don't have to make up something else. We don't have to come up with plans and programs and ways to entice people into the door of the church. All we have to do is preach the Word. And I mean that in your personal life as well. You don't have to have every answer. Just be in the Word. So that when those opportunities come to talk to somebody about Jesus, the Word will be what comes out. Give them the Word of God. Because it doesn't come back empty. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine a world with no rain and no snow. None whatsoever. I know some of you think, oh, that'd be nice, no snow. Move to Arizona. No rain, no snow. No. They get some, don't they? Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> a world with no rain and no snow. Dry, cracked, starved for nourishment. God says, my word is like the rain and the snow. It nourishes. It sinks in. It causes things to grow. It brings bread seed. And if we don't know our master's manger, we're going to have trouble hearing our master's voice. Verse 4. Continuing, he says, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. What does he mean, offsprings of evildoers? He means this is a long-term rebellion. This didn't just pop up in Isaiah's day. This has been going on a long, long time. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Kadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again, He says, as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. He's talking about an entire body disease from the top of the head to the tip of the toe. Now, Isaiah may be, at this point, either prophesying about an immediate event, or he could be writing this down after watching the invasion of Assyria into northern Israel. Now remember, Isaiah is preaching to southern Judah in Jerusalem. That's his primary area of ministry. But he's concerned about all Israel. And in 722 B.C., Assyria came down and decimated the northern kingdom. Just wiped it out brutally. And Isaiah saw that happen. And he may be referring to that. Or he may be referring to the fact that even now, mighty Assyria is bearing down on Jerusalem. And there's no longer any buffer zone even between them and that brutal northern giant. Verse 8, he says, or verse 7, Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And strangers is probably Assyria. Verse 8, The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. The daughter of Zion that speaks of Jerusalem and Judah. And by 701 B.C., Assyria's king Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem. And on the way there was just wiping out Judah right and left. In fact, Isaiah says in verse 9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we'd be like Sodom, we'd be like Gomorrah. We would be burned toast. Sennacherib, historically, came down with the intention of destroying Jerusalem. God would not let it happen. 
But on the way there, as Sennacherib made his way, he destroyed most of the fortress cities of Judah, most of the outposts in Judah, and he surrounded Jerusalem. And truly, by the time he got there, Jerusalem, sitting up on the hill, was like a vineyard shelter. It was like a watchman's hut. They still have those in Jerusalem today. If you're driving along the road, you look out in the fields, you'll see just a little hut. It's so someone has a place of shade when they're out working the shield. And it's a flimsy little thing. It's not meant to stand long. They're usually just put up for the season. And he's saying, that's that's Jerusalem. Like a watchman's hut. Listen to the words of Sennacherib himself. This comes out of ancient Assyrian records. Sennacherib of Assyria wrote, As for Hezekiah the Judean, who had not submitted to my yoke, 46 of his strong cities, together with innumerable fortresses and small towns which depended on them, I besieged, I captured... I brought out from the midst of them and counted as spoil 200,150 persons, great and small, male and female, horses and mules and asses and camels and oxen and sheep without number. Hezekiah himself I shut up like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem, his royal city. So Sennacherib had him surrounded. You remember what happened in the story? I'll have to tell you later. It's very cool. But God turns them around. God intervenes. God saves Jerusalem in that day. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And again, he's comparing Jerusalem and Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah. Not comparing them to the destruction, but comparing them now to the behavior. To the sinfulness. The Bible would do that again. Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, compares Jerusalem to Sodom, saying the great city which is mystically called Sodom, where also their Lord was crucified. Jerusalem. Now, think about this for a minute. Jerusalem is called Sodom? Sodom that God destroyed because it was so sin-sick? Everything from lack of care to the poor to the rampant homosexuality to the sexual immorality going on throughout that city. And God said, enough! And He pulls Lot out and He rained fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, completely destroying it. And now, now He's calling Jerusalem. Jerusalem He's calling Sodom. You need to understand something. God loves Jerusalem. Jerusalem, this is the city of the great King. This is the city that God has called His own. Of all the cities of the earth, it's the only one. Not L.A., not Seattle, certainly not San Francisco, New York. The only city in all the planet that He called His own. Jerusalem. 1 Kings 11.36, He calls it the city where I have chosen for Myself to put My name. It's My city. Psalm 132, verse 13 says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation, saying, This is My resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. God loves Jerusalem. No wonder Isaiah shared that same passion passion for it. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1, He says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Why is Isaiah so passionate for Jerusalem? Because Kadosh Israel is passionate for Jerusalem. Because God loves it so much. 
And the problem isn't Jerusalem itself. The problem is what's going on inside. It's the people in her gates. Verse 11, the Lord says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough! The burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings to me no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Now, we read that on Sunday morning. But you know what's being described here? If you go down and read through these verses and think it through, God is rejecting their ministry. He's rejecting their service. He's rejecting their worship. He's rejecting their prayer. He's rejecting their holy days. And I read down the list thinking, these are all things we do in the church. And they're all good things. They're all good things. Yes, we should be worshiping and and praying and serving and in ministry. and, And yeah, the holy days, times together, those are all important and they're all valid. But God's saying, I don't want any of it if the heart is not right. If you're here just going through the motions, and again, we talked about that Sunday, I don't want it. Because it's not the motions that interest me. It's not the words of your prayer. It's the heart behind it. It's not the beauty of your worship. It's where your mind is as you're you're in that place. It's not all this religion. It's the relationship. And where there's no relationship, religion is just a vapid, empty, legalistic thing. And God says, I don't want that. He's never wanted it. Mankind keeps missing this point. God does not want religion. Never has, never will. He wants you. And He wants me. Don't miss this, that um, you know, for all their ministry and worship and prayer services and holidays, they could not cover up the sin that was bubbling underneath. And neither can we. Religion does not hide sin. It's still there. But all this stuff was going on. And don't miss that God still, even through this, He refers to His people. He's presenting a case against them, taking them to court for what they've done, and yet He still calls them back in verse 2, He calls them, My sons. He calls them in verse 4, My people. Because as much as Kadosh Israel loves Jerusalem, He loves His people Israel with a passionate love. Verse 16, He then says, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from My sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. You know, you don't plead for that kind of stuff from people you don't care about. You don't call people to new and right and holy behavior if you're through with them. If you're done with them. Sadly, as many of you know, many people today deny God's love for and commitment to Israel. And in denying that, they miss the majesty of God's gracious plan. 
Man, when I used to think it was just all about the church, I missed out on so much. So much of the wonder of what God is doing and the the absolute grandeur of His plan. It's amazing what He's up to, what He's doing. And it involves Israel. Victor Buchsbazen, and I will probably quote him a lot, he has an outstanding, probably one of the best commentaries on Isaiah out there. Victor Buchsbazen. A Jew himself came to the Lord Jesus, and he wrote, This age-old misinterpretation and misapplication of Scripture has profoundly affected and distorted the thinking of Christians in vital areas of faith, doctrine, and conduct. He says, To be properly understood, the Bible must be interpreted in its primary sense, wherever this is the obvious meaning, and not spiritualized. Where Isaiah speaks of Judah and Jerusalem, he means Judah and Jerusalem. Where he speaks of Israel, he means Israel. Where the prophet speaks of the restoration of Israel, listen, he means the restoration of Israel, not the restoration of the church. And Buchsbazen says, there is, however, a true and legitimate link between Israel and the church. The Messiah of Israel is the head of the church. (laughs) That's marvelous. Their Messiah is our head. And He binds us together. And He grafts us into that marvelous and wonderful plan. Remove the unfounded tradition and dogmatic system of replacement theology which tries to say that the church has replaced Israel because God is through with the Jew. And what you see, when you take that out of the way, as God had to do in my life, when you remove that filth and you can see the truth, what you end up seeing is God's love for Israel shining with power and intensity. And it affirms His love for me. It absolutely affirms, because if God maintains commitment to His people Israel through all that has happened, and if He still has a plan for them and He is still going to redeem them, then I can trust Him when He says He's going to redeem me as well. Amen? He loves His people. Note this, you can't seriously read the book of Isaiah and come out thinking that God, though He's put out with Israel, has put out Israel. He is not. And the book proves that. One more thing, before we go on. Isaiah, remember this, will primarily deal with the southern kingdom of Judah, as I said before. And even though he watched the northern kingdom of Israel fall to Assyria throughout the book, he still makes it abundantly clear that God's passion and love is with all of Israel. And in fact, that the Lord views all the offspring of Jacob as Israel, his people. Keep that in mind. Now, when the Lord was fed up with his rebellious sons, what did he do? Verse 18, he said, come now and let's reason together. Number two in your notes, the reason of God. Following the rebellion of Israel, the reason of God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent... And obey. You'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Get the contrast? You're either going to eat well or you're going to be eaten alive. If you obey, you will eat well. If you rebel, you're going to be eaten up by it. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Let us reason together, he says. The word reason, yakat in the Hebrew, it means to dialogue. Let us talk this through together. But you need to understand that behind this word yakat, it's not... It's not speaking of dialoguing or a conversation or a negotiation. See, that's, that's what my son Hayden and I are trying to learn together. That when I lay down the law, it's not a dialogue. It's not a conversation. And I had to share that with him again just last night. Son, here's the deal. This is what we're doing. Yeah, but it's not a conversation. It's the way it is. What God is doing here in Isaiah is He's using a legal term. Yaka, come now let us reason together, is a legal term for presenting a case. For laying out a case. And that's what God is doing. He's laying out a case. Here's the deal. Here's the way it's going to go down. Here's what you need to understand. You got blessing, you got cursing. Remember Moses did the same thing in Deuteronomy? Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, the Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Cursing. And if you will obey me, you get blessing. And if you want to rebel against me, you're going to get cursing. Why? Because God wants to curse? No, because if you reject God, you reject what's good. You reject everything that He has to offer. And so the land is going to devour you rather than you devouring the land. And so the Lord lays it out. If you change course and obey, you're going to do well. If you rebel, you'll be devoured. Change course, He says. Change course. Turn it around. And even though your sin be as scarlet... I will make you white as snow. Now, I love this. It's one of the coolest passages in all Scripture because these colors of scarlet red and snow white paint a stunning biblical picture. Not of a Disney princess, but of a worm. It's a picture of a worm. You Bible students know this. In fact, we talked about this when we studied Psalm 22. Let me remind you or refresh your memory. In early Israel, there was a worm called a tolat. The tolat worm. And when it was ground up, this worm would produce a reddish pulp. And they literally would use this reddish bloody pulp from the worm as dye for the robes of the high priest and for the robes of a king. It's crimson scarlet dye from this tolat worm. But the more amazing picture is this. This worm would, to birth its young, would crawl up onto a tree and attach itself there to a tree branch. And it would lay all of its eggs beneath it, and the eggs would hatch, and then begin to eat their way through their mother's body. Literally, this worm would give its life to nourish its young. It would die giving life to its babies. And when the larvae hatched and ate their way through the body, obviously the toloth would die there on the branch and would leave a scarlet residue that would bleach in the sun over two or three or four days and eventually turn snowy white. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Jesus said in Psalm 22, verse 6, I am a toloth. I'm a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. I'm the Tolot. I'm the worm whose scarlet, crimson, red blood, as scarlet as your sin, my blood covers your sin and makes you white as snow. By the way, this is the first hint in Isaiah of the source of Israel's and our redemption. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow.
This is the reason of God for sending Emmanuel. Number three in your notes. Now, the redemption of Israel. Watch this, verse 21. The redemption of Israel. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Now, this may not sound like redemption at first. You know, in fact, you read the verse and it kind of comes off like, okay, he's going to rant. He's about to go off on Israel again. Gang, before we assume this, you got to hear the first word in the Hebrew. The first word, verse 21, is Echa. 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 It's how. Translated how. But in the Hebrew, it's Echa. And Buxbaz, and again, a Jew himself, says this word sounds like a sigh. Sounds like a sigh. It's the exact same word that Jeremiah uses to begin his lament, Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, Eyah, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who is once great among the nations. Same idea here. The same idea. Eyah, the faithful city has become a harlot. How has this happened? You were once full of justice and righteousness. Eyah, the Lord says. Verse 22, your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan. Nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes, and I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. Check this out. He says, I'm going to wipe out the enemies and then I'm going to turn my hand on you, but it's not annihilation. It's purification. I am going to bring you through the fire, Israel, but not because I want to destroy you. I want to destroy your enemies and I will do so. But I want to bring you through the fires of purification. It's marvelous. And notice he uses the example of silver here. Not gold. He'll use the example of gold for purification in other places. But here, it's just silver. Your silver silver has become dross in verse 22. And I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy in verse 25. Why? So there's nothing but absolutely pure silver. And remember, silver in the Bible conveys redemption. The redemption of Israel is the purification of Israel. And that's how God's going to bring it about. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8. The prophet says, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They will call on My name and I will answer them and I will say, They are My people. And they will say, The Lord is My God. Redemption by purification. That has always been God's plan for Israel to redeem them. And Paul says in Romans 11.15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? 
verse 26 going on, he says, Then I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Now, I love this. You'll be called a faithful city, a city of righteousness. One of the reasons why Cheryl enjoys going to Israel so much is she said this the first or second time we were there. We're standing on the Temple Mount and we're looking out across the city. And Cheryl said, What I love, I know it was on the Mount of Olives, wasn't it? What I love about being here is not learning what has happened, it's knowing what is going to happen. It's knowing what's coming right here. It's knowing what this city is going to be, not what it's been. Not even what it is today with that big gold pimple on the Temple Mount. It's not going to be that. It's going to be this beautiful, marvelous, God calls it, city of righteousness. People will look to Jerusalem. The Bible tells us, we'll see this, Isaiah says, people will flock to Jerusalem. The perfect, the beautiful, the righteous, the faithful city. And he says, Zion will be redeemed with justice. Note this, he says, her repentant ones with righteousness. That's important to note. Because redemption, listen, redemption always comes after repentance. Redemption comes after repentance. Now the act of our redemption, Christ's crucifixion came before our repentance. You know, His sacrifice preceded it. But repentance precedes redemption. Why? Because God's redemption includes your choice. What do you mean? Listen, repentance is a huge proof of free will. Repentance disputes the doctrine of predetermination. Because repentance is up to you. Repentance is my choice. Repentance is not something God forces on me or makes me do. He invites me to it. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Not wishing. The word means not intending, not wanting, not desiring anyone to perish. His desire is that everyone repents, but He's not going to make you. His redemption is there available, but repentance comes first. Your choice. Because where there is repentance... Redemption always follows. Acts 3.19, Peter says, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I like that. Repentance, that was my choice. Redemption is His. Sacrifice, the blood, His grace, that's all God. I got to choose it. He brought me into the process. Verse 28, But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. And those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired. And you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. What's this about? Oaks? Gardens? What does he mean? I'll just let Scripture explain it to you. Isaiah 57 verse 4. Isaiah speaks for the Lord. The Lord says, Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? (laughs) Boy, I remember. I remember the first time I saw my brother get a spanking in public. We were coming out of the the, the, um, neighborhood pool there. 
walking back to the car, and Ron didn't want to get out of the pool, and you know I was dripping wet, sitting in the car, waiting to go home. My mom was in the car, and she was saying, "Come on, Ron, let's go." And he turned around, and six, seven years old, stuck his tongue out at her. Oh yeah, he got spanking right there in the middle of the parking lot. It was glorious. Anyway, (laughs) the Lord says. Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves, listen, among the oaks, under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags? In another place, Isaiah 65, verse 3, he says, A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. He says in Isaiah 66, verse 17, Those who sanctify and purify themselves go to the gardens, following one in the center who eat pig's flesh, detestable things, and mice, (laughs) will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. What does this mean? Oaks and gardens were the high places of pagan sacrifice. And Isaiah makes this clear. The people would slip off to these groves of oak trees, these circular groves that would be up in the high places, And these circular groves were planted with the intention of keeping the pagan activity from the eyes of Judah all around. They thought they could sneak off and get away with it, this secret sin that's going on. And so they went off to these secret gardens, hidden among these groves of oak trees, to sin. And the Lord says, surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you've desired. You'll be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like, verse 30, an oak whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. And it's marvelous. He's using a Hebrew word play here. The word oak, elim in the Hebrew, is also used for idol. You'll be ashamed of the oaks. You'll be ashamed of your idolatry, which you have performed. The strong man will become tender, like a tinderbox. His work also a spark. And the strong man here, the indication is an idol maker. A carver of wooden idols or stone idols. And you who carve up these wooden idols, you'll become like a tinder, like a spark. All of it's going to burn. They shall both burn together, verse 31, and there will be none to quench them. John the Baptist said of Jesus in Matthew 3.12, He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is Jesus. Oh, Jesus is cool. Oh, Jesus is my man. He's alright. He's just about love and, and peace and grace. And there's really no hell because Jesus he's not into that whole hell stuff. Even though you Bible students know He talked about hell more than He talked about heaven. John the Baptist said He will use an unquenchable fire to burn out the chaff. What's the chaff? Those in rebellion to the Lord? Those who reject Him? Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus' own words. He said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. (laughs) It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. That's Jesus' description of hell. Yes, Virginia, there is a hell. That's the indictment. The Holy One of Israel has presented His case, but all this reasoning and warning is for the purpose of redemption, the redemption of Israel. Now, you're starting to feel like, it's a little heated. 
Watch this. The reign of Messiah, number four. The reign of Messiah, chapter 2, verse 1. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The word he saw. The word he saw. David sees words because we have these little videos that, that he can watch that are showing him like vowel sounds. and But you don't normally see words, do you? The word that he saw. Well, the word in Hebrew, saw, or word there is dabar, and dabar is bigger than our word for word. Dabar also means an event, an occurrence, a happening, something of greatness, and this is what he saw. Verse 2, it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and will be raised up above the hills, and all the nations will stream into it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is just awesome. It's a prophecy of the rule and reign of the coming Messiah in what what Isaiah calls the Yom Akarit, which is the last, or literally the end of days. So this, right in the front end of the book, is not something for Judah right then. It's not a prophecy of immediacy. It's a prophecy of the end days. It is yet to come. We have not yet seen this. That day when all of the nations, all the peoples will flow to Jerusalem to worship there, to hear from the Lord. It's so amazing, God gave this exact same vision twice. Once to Isaiah and once to the younger prophet alive in Isaiah's day, Micah. And if you go to Micah chapter 4, don't do it right now, but the two prophecies read almost word for word. Why would He do that? I'll tell you on Sunday. In fact, this whole prophecy is so amazing, we're just going to save it for Sunday. So let's go on. Isaiah goes on from here to give four examples of how the house of Jacob, the house of Jacob, Israel, is not walking in the light of the, of the Lord. Watch this, verse 6. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, number one, they become paganized. The people have become paganized. They are influenced by the East. Oh, the influence of the East is huge in our culture. Not that the West is any better. That's, that's a different influence. But paganism from the East and New Age spiritualism and Eastern mysticism is rampant in our culture. We, like Israel, are becoming gang paganized. Going on, he says, they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Verse 7, their land has also been filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Well, they've become commercialized. Paganized, commercialized. Striking hands with foreigners for bargains. And you all know the financial systems of the world are so interrelated and so connected. If one goes down, we all go down. The euro... Tim, you were saying you're listening to the Revelation study right now. i got to update it. 
Because it was back in 2005, and I was talking about the euro as a possibility for a one-world currency. Not so sure right now. May very well be something else. But uh, interesting. Just now, uh, today, I guess it was, the financial markets did very well because we extended, we kicked the can down the road a little bit further. And currently... Yeah, that's... They all did it. Yeah. So we're just kind of staring down this massive, massive debt across, worldwide anyway. And it's also that we can maintain our lifestyle. It's also that we don't have to deal with the fact that we do not have what we think we have. And Israel was the same way. Judah was the same way. Paganized, commercialized, striking hands again with foreigners for bargains. In verse 7 going on, their land has also been filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. In other words, they become weaponized. Because the horses and the chariots were the tanks of the day. And Israel is now weaponized, relying... It's not... Understand, it's relying on the strength of horses and chariots. It's relying on the strength of America's military, for example. And I love our military. You know that. I love our men and women in service. I love the sacrifice that they are willing to put out for the rest of us. But that is not where our strength lies. That will not save a nation. It never has. The strength of a military. If a nation becomes paganized and commercialized and weaponized, and verse 8, their land has also been filled with idols. They've become idolized. (laughs) American idolized. But here's the deal. They worship the works of their hands, that which their fingers have made. Something's changed in Israel. Something's gone very wrong in Judah. They're not just worshiping the gods of other lands anymore. They're making up their own. They're crafting them with their own. They're not just buying the gods of the pagan nations. They're not just purchasing or using other idols. They're making them themselves. Wow. Paganized, commercialized, weaponized, idolized. And the outcome of this is not the grandeur and the glory and the honor that today's America thinks it will achieve with all these exact same things. I mean, we are paralleling this. And we think that these things are going to bring about our glory. They're going to return the splendor of America. Not so. Look at verse 9. So the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased. Abased means to be brought low. And Isaiah's writing here, he says, But do not forgive them! He's angry. This prophet is hopping mad. And as he is detailing all of the sin of Judah, he calls out to the Lord, Don't forgive them, Lord! I am so thankful that Jesus looked down from the cross and said, Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. But Isaiah said, Don't. Isaiah could just as easily here be pleading with America. And the issue is that both Wall Street and those who would occupy Wall Street are wrong. Both are missing it, gang. There's no amount of religious tolerance, paganism, or riches, commercialism, or national defense, weaponry, or human ingenuity, idolatry. No amount of all these things can save us. Think about what Jesus said to Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and, become, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing 
and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See. With eyes of revelation. So that you may see and know what God's will is. What the word of the Lord is. What His desires are for you. That we might see. Only Messiah can save Only Jesus. None of these other things. And whether we're talking nationally as in America or internationally as in the whole entire world, we also have to talk personally. None of these things will save you either. You know, storing up wealth. Influence of of other things. Loading up the gun cabinet. Weaponizing the house. I mean, none of this stuff. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is going to get us through this season to the moment He calls us home. Only Jesus. We have to put our full faith and trust in Him. Verse 10. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The proud look of man will be abased. And the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. What day? Listen. The day of the Lord. The day Isaiah is talking about is the day of the Lord. How do you know? Because he goes on to describe it in number five, fifth point, final point, the reckoning, the reckoning of Gadosh, Israel. The reckoning of the Holy One of Israel. When does this start? When does the day of the Lord begin? Halfway through the tribulation? At some point during the tribulation? No. The day of the Lord is the tribulation. The whole tribulation is the day of the Lord. From start to finish. How do you know? Watch this. Verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. All the proud will be brought low. It will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up and against the oaks of Bashan, and against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish. The ships of Tarshish were all those that would sail out of Israel to the west. All the ships of commerce. And against all the beautiful craft. Verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And he's saying here with all these descriptions, the oaks of Bashan, the cedars of Lebanon, the lofty mountains, all of this, he's saying nothing will withstand that day. Nothing can save in that day. Every human being will be brought low in that day just as the highest of mountains and the tallest of of sturdy oak trees will be wiped out in that day. Towers and fortifications and ships of man wiped out in that day. We have never seen... Listen, we have never seen anything like the day of the Lord. We haven't. Mankind at its worst has never seen what will happen in the day of the Lord. We didn't see it in A.D. 70. Some would tell you that that was it. 
They're wrong. We did not see the day of the Lord in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. Terrible as it was. We didn't see it in the Holocaust. Horrific as that was. We have never seen anything so worldwide and cataclysmic, and don't get me wrong, I'm not sharing this with glee or excitement for the world to be wiped out. This is not like standing in line for an adventure movie where everything's going to get destroyed and blown up and you're just cool. You know, It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a devastation that the world has no idea is coming, though God has talked about it for centuries. Joel, the pro- or Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 30, verse 7, said, Alas, for the day is great, there's none like it. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. Joel said in chapter 2, verse 2, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Which speaks of the millennial kingdom, which comes after. Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said there will be a great tribulation such as has not such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And by the way, that verse right there, that's why I don't buy preterism. The belief that everything happened in AD 70. Because Jesus said what happens in this day will be unparalleled. Nothing will surpass it. Well, the Holocaust surpassed what happened in AD 70. So as of the Holocaust, we can look back and say, well, Jesus said nothing like it would ever happen again. So it cannot have been the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Because worse has happened since then. And Jesus said it wouldn't. Unless those days, Jesus said, had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect. I thought the church was raptured. It is. The elect is not the church. The elect is Israel. Israel was always called the elect. The chosen ones. And for the sake of the elect, the chosen Those days will be cut short. Verse 17 going on, The pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to, watch this, to make the earth tremble. He's talking about an earthquake. But a massive one. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. Isaiah is describing a massive, epic, worldwide earthquake such as has never been seen with such specificity that it has to be the earthquake of the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6. Let me read it to you. Revelation 6 verse 12, I looked when He broke, the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Every mountain and island, <laughs> so much for Whidbey, were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, watch this, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. That's what Isaiah prophesied. 700 and 
90 or so plus years before John prophesied the same exact earthquake. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Reason number 14 for a pre-tribulation rapture. (laughs) Isaiah described the entire tribulation and described the great earthquake of the first half. The great earthquake that is brought about by the Lamb breaking the seal. Under the authority of God. Under the authority of the Holy One of Israel who is purifying Israel through the fire as silver is purified, redeeming Israel, turning Israel around, waking up the Jewish people while at the same time pouring out wrath on the world. And you are not destined for wrath but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Verse 22. Stop. (laughs) I love this verse. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Isaiah will continue in this discourse. Chapter 3, 4, and 5. He continues in kind of the same thing. In fact, chapters 2 through 5 is a single discourse. And he sums it all up with the parable of the vineyard. We'll look at that probably next week. I want to stop here tonight, but I want to leave you with one final question. And especially as we are, seems like being dragged into the presidential season, the, the campaign season, the final question is who do you regard? I don't know about you, but I've been looking at candidates for a long time going, I don't know. know. Who do you regard? Who do you esteem? So far, Isaiah has dealt with some very high planes. Prophetically, he's dealt historically, he's dealt nationally, even internationally. And some might be tempted because of the grandeur of what Isaiah is talking about. We might be tempted to kind of dismiss it as impersonal. Oh, this is awesome. This is really cool stuff. It's prophecy. It doesn't really have anything to do with me, but it was fun to listen to. Don't do that. Don't do that. We've got to take this personally. We need to apply this personally. How do we do that? Who do you regard? Who do you esteem? So far, in these opening chapters, Isaiah has yet to name Messiah explicitly. He hasn't done it. But the implication is here in verse 3 of chapter 2 where he says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. And Isaiah is talking about one who will be on the mountain of the Lord, who will be in the temple, the one to whom the world can go to learn about truth and love and righteousness and grace and mercy, Jesus Christ. He's indicating the Messiah right there. He hasn't named Him yet, but He's indicating Him. But you know what's amazing? Right now, we are in an incredible position. Because we don't have to go. I'm glad we're taking a group to Israel, but you don't have to go. They joke and say that a prayer in Israel is a local call. You know? But it's not. It's not. You don't have to go up to the mountain of the Lord. 
He has already taken up residence in your heart. The very same Spirit of Christ who blessed Isaiah with these words, who walked the earth, and who is coming back to rule and reign, resides in your heart, in my heart. That's incredible to me. The Spirit of Christ Jesus. Who do you esteem? You know, who who do you regard? Not man, but Jesus Christ. Let's pray to Him. Lord Jesus, in the uncertainty of these times, which so parallel the times of Isaiah, son of Amoz, so parallel the the last couple of hundred years, Lord, of the existence of Judah back in the day. With all this uncertainty and fear and concern and worry in this world, Lord, we don't esteem a man to be a president to save America. We don't regard any individual. We're not looking to human beings anymore. We are looking to You, Jesus. We are looking to You to come back and rule and reign and set things right by Your righteousness. But Lord, we're also looking to You right here and right now to lead us and to teach us Your ways so that we can walk in the light of the Lord. I pray, Father, we would walk in the light of Jesus so clearly and so absolutely as to be seen by other people. I pray that the light would flood out of this barn, that the light would cover us every day of the week, every moment, and that we would be listening to the voice of our Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.